Well, the title of tonight's gathering message is I am a mess edge. And so I don't know if any of you have ever felt like you were a little messy. I don't know. I'm not just talking about like physically messy, but although if you're one of those messy people, um, you just throw your clothes down. Can you admit it right now in your group that I'm the hot mess? Okay. So I know that we have some of you who are maybe clean on the outside, but then you would admit, hopefully all of us would admit that we have had messy seasons, that we have had seasons where we've made lots of mistakes, um, that we are a mess. And so the type, uh, the title of tonight's topic is I am a mess sedge. And I want to talk about how God uses us in the midst of our mess, that he doesn't wait until we're cleaned up to begin to use us. And so now, now we have talked for really a couple of years about the vision of Arise Women's Ministry being that she might be saved, healed, and empowered, saved, healed, and empowered. And the past couple of years spent a great deal of time talking about being salva- being saved and salvation and also about healing and inner trauma and how to deal with that and process that. Um, but really this year, our, we are honing in on this empowerment that God has not just saved us from something, but God saved us for something. You are not just saved from something, but you are saved for something. God has an intention on your life, a purpose on your life. There's somewhere he wants to take you. There's a progressive revelation, a progressive plan of God for your life. In Ephesians 2, it says this, verse 8, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do God's works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is kind of a wild thought in Psalm 139. It says that all of our days are written out for us before we ever even lived one. You kind of get this imagery that God has this master book with your name on it and have it in an assignment that he has desired. This is a goal that he has in mind for you to do. He's got work for you to do. If you're with some girls right now, turn to them and say, girl, he's got some work for you to do. And so I want to talk about this God assignment on your life, um, this big picture assignment um, of creation. Why did God create us? What was the purpose? And we've talked about this a lot that sometimes we get so focused on, you know, God just saving us from our sins. But why did he do this? Why did he create humans? He didn't create us to worship him. He had um, angels to worship him. He created family. He wanted family. Uh, But I want you to think about Eden. We touched this a little bit last time, but the Garden of Eden, that God did not create Eden fully tended. Um, that God created Eden with this raw, this garden with raw potential. And then he put man to work. He didn't give Adam the animals already named. He gave Adam the freedom and the liberty to name the animals for him. God almost essentially commissions Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to tend the earth, to tend the garden. In other words, God wanted to partner with us. As a matter of fact, God could fulfill all of his plans without us, but he chooses not to. Consistently, God chooses not to fulfill his plans or his will without humans. Now, we see this. I want you to think about Paul, um, Saul before he was saved, and he's on his high horse, and he gets knocked off of his high horse, and Jesus comes and appears to Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at this moment, something strange happens, and instead of um, Jesus telling Saul how to come to faith in Christ, 
He blinds Saul and he says, Saul, I want you to go find this man named Ananias and Ananias will tell you how to be saved. Now this seems kind of crazy. Like why not just go ahead and take care of this Jesus? As as a matter of fact, why did he commission us for the gospel anyway? If Jesus could have personally appeared to each of us and led us to himself, then why does he use us anyway? And the simple answer is because he wants to. Because he just wants to partner with us. He gave Ananias the privilege of being a part of the salvation of a man who would write two-thirds of the New Testament. He wanted to allow Ananias to partner with him. Let's think about the ark and the flood. Why did God ask Noah and his sons to build an ark? God could have built the ark already. He could have given him a ready-made ark. Why did he make him go to an archaic Ikea and build this ark for from scratch. Why did he have to put all these pieces together and build this for a hundred years? Why? Because God wanted, he chose to partner with man. And there, you see this narrative all throughout story, God choosing a family, God choosing a man, God choosing a person and saying, Hey, I want you. Will you come and partner with me? And what's so brilliant and so beautiful about this is that I'm going to take this to the next level and propose to you that God even sometimes will delay his will until he finds a willing partner. That not only does God want to partner with us, that sometimes he won't even fulfill his will until he finds someone who will come alongside and do it with him. And this is the whole purpose of prayer. This is why Jesus says, ask and you'll receive, knock and the door will be open. It's because God wants us to join in. He wants us to want to be a part of this. And the gentleman that he is, he waits and knocks. He wants to invite us to be a part of what he's doing. He's looking for some partners to choose in Matthew. 22, 14, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is a curious little verse, and we'll talk about where the context of that verse comes from in just a minute, but few are chosen. So what kind of people does God choose? I want to look at that for just a second. What kind of people does God choose? Now, when I think about this, I think about dodgeball, because I was a little chunky girl in school that no one chose. Um, I was at the last to be called on the team of dodgeball because I was the artsy um, little nerd girl that was a little chunky, very clumsy, and I was the last to be chosen, okay? So if that was you, you're in good company. That was also me. No one wanted Melody on their team for dodgeball. Um, And so when I think about many are called, few are chosen, like how do we like pick me, Jesus? Like I want to be on your team. So let's look at the kind of people that God frequently chooses because I'm going to tell you it's not who you would expect. First Corinthians 1, it says this, verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before them. Even think about think about the fact that Jesus was born to a carpenter and he was considered illegitimate birth. That even where he was born, it said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? God has this tendency to choose shepherds over wise men. He chooses these these in 
insignificant by human standard, these, even the disciples, as a matter of fact, I read one commentator that said that, remember when it said they could tell that the disciples, uh, they knew who Jesus' disciples were by their accents. And so one commentator said that at that time, people of Galilee had accents very similar to the hill people of the Appalachian Mountains. And so if you're from West Virginia and you got a little accent, a hillbilly accent, listen, this is who God likes to choose. He chooses the people quite frequently that humans overlook. Not many wise, not many of noble birth, not many that are influential. And so this this context of that verse where we talked about for many are called, few are chosen is actually from a parable that Jesus told. And Jesus said that he and his father were going to invite a banquet and they had an elaborate banquet and they set the table feast and they invited everyone. But it said that people had a lot of excuses and they did not come. And so this is what Jesus said. He said in the parable, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. And his master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so these are who God chooses the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And he says, many are called, but only those who show up are chosen. Do you hear me? Many are called, but few are chosen because there's something about being weaker, being a mess, being broken that helps us to recognize our need for God's salvation. And sometimes it's actually a disadvantage to be wise, a disadvantage to be rich, a disadvantage to be smart or influential because we mistakenly believe that we have better things to do than to show up to the banquet party. And so God has this tendency to call those that man would overlook time and time and time again. He chooses poor hillbilly fishermen or a ragtag team of women with extremely broken past. This is who Jesus tends to call. As a matter of fact, let's look at the God squad for just a minute because it's not even just about influence or status or wisdom or money. Really, God chose a bunch of hot messes even morally. And I'm not even just talking about pre-salvation. I'm talking about after they had encountered God, the people that God chose were actually quite a mess. Very, very messy. Let's just look at some of them. So you have Peter as his disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but Peter just makes me feel better in all respects when Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. I just feel better. He was a blunderer. He was impulsive. He denied Christ. He cursed someone. He cursed around when he was asked if he knew Christ. He actually started cursing and denying to a little girl. He ran from a little girl. He was even called Satan by Jesus at one point, okay? So this is not a guy who has it all together. You have James and John who Jesus called the sons of thunder because they were merciless. They wanted to call fire down from heaven. They were arguing about who would be greatest when Jesus was going to be crucified and talking about going to his death. And this group of people that he chose were actually arguing at that moment about who would be the leader among them all. We have Mary Magdalene, whose scriptures tell us was possessed with seven demons prior to Jesus delivering her. You have Matthew, a tax collector. You have Thomas, who was a doubter 
doubter and a deserter. You have Judas who was a betrayer and a thief. You have John the Baptist who even though he had saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus and he heard an audible voice, this is my son whom I am well pleased, actually we see was offended by Jesus when he was right before his death and was questioning and doubting if Jesus was the Messiah. You have Paul who was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. Let's back up to the Old Testament and you have Abraham and Sarah who took a slave girl and forced her to have sex with her husband and then impregnated her and then when they became je- when Sarah became jealous of her then casted her out and with her son guys this is some serious moral failure you have Jacob who was a trickster deceiver he he, he was a father who was favoritism incited hatred among his own children you have Moses who was a murderer whose anger frequently got the best of him who argued with God about speaking on his own behalf until God had to send him a partner just to appease him. You have David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. And let me remind you about an often forgotten story that even when David was king, he took a census that literally caused the death of thousands of of Israelites because he knew it was wrong and he did it anyway out of pride. You have Elijah, who was selfish and harsh, who was cowardly, and yet God still used him to do miracles. I could go on and on and on and tell you about stories in scripture from the patriarchs of incest, of murder, of family homicide, of lying, of cheating. Like actually one of the reasons that you know the scripture is inspired is because if man wrote the scriptures, they would leave all of this junk out. There's no way, if you read stories about other people that write religious texts, they leave all the bad stuff out. Why did God put so many graphic, horrific failures of people that he chose in the scriptures, if not to show us his loving kindness and his loyalty to broken men and women? That he doesn't just choose people who have it all together. And we're going to talk about why. He doesn't just choose people who are perfect, but he actually chooses the messy. He didn't hide the patriarch and the apostles' flaws because he wanted us to have comfort. That he is a God who has a progressive work on our lives and he doesn't wait until we've arrived to begin to use us. So if you're saying tonight that God can't use you because you're a mess, then I'm here to tell you, you are in very good company because we're all a mess. And so I want you to to think about the, the idea and to get this anchored in your soul that God does not wait until we're no longer a mess to make us a message. God does not wait until we're no longer a mess to make us his message. Um, So I like to say that the Lord tends to do on-the-go training. He does live internship. If you see him when he calls Peter, when he calls these disciples, and remember he commissioned them. Like he didn't wait till the three years was over. If you see, even during the three years of his ministry, he's sending them two by two to go heal the sick, cast out demons. He's sending them to other towns to do work on his behalf, even while they're such a mess. And he does this on-the-go training. So now why does why does he do this? And furthermore, why has the church stopped doing this? Like at what point in church history did we decide that someone has to go through seminary, that someone has to go through five leadership courses to begin to be used by God? 
Now, um, there are scriptures that say we shouldn't lay hands on anyone suddenly, that we shouldn't appoint a novice. And so I'm not talking about ranking in leadership, becoming a pastor of a church when you've only been saved for a few days, but I'm saying at what point have we so crippled and muted and put our hands over new believers that actually we make them go through so much process before they can be used, before they're seen as able to be used, that by the time they graduate through all these leadership and internship classes, they've lost the fire they had when they were first saved. Jesus didn't do ministry like this. Jesus called people, and I love it. If you think about Zacchaeus, that he says, today, I'm coming to your house today. Immediately, he started a home group. Come on, like immediately, like right then, this, this tax collector, this sinner, immediately opened up his home and began to share the gospel. Now, why does God use such weak, frail humans? Why doesn't he choose the wise? In 2 Corinthians 12, it says, this is Paul, um, and he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Now, this is critical. I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And if you look at scripture, you see scripture almost delighting and telling us the flaws of the apostles and the patriarchs. Like they don't hide them. They almost delight in showing it to the point that we question. Because let me just tell you, just because the patriarchs and the apostles were flawed... It doesn't mean it was an endorsement by God of their behavior, but what it is showing us is that God is willing to have a work in progress, that God is willing to come alongside of us and do on-the-go progressive training and discipleship and sanctification inside of us. And so, But you see scriptures almost glorying in the apostles' weaknesses now. And so God says because his grace and his strength actually works best in the mess. His grace and his strength actually works best in the mess. Now, I want to tell you a story about something really cool that happened to us and to our family. So we have been praying about possibly building a house, and um, we've been looking at this for a couple of years. And if you know me at all, you know that I grew up in um, South Louisiana. Um, and if you are from North Louisiana, you were considered a Yankee. I'm talking dirty South, like flatlands and swamps when you can get on the road. And as far as you can see, it's just a flat road. So the first time that Brandon ever took me to West Virginia before we were married um, to visit his family, I was just immediately head over hills in love with these mountains. And so um, I call myself now a Cajun mountain mama. And so I, we were looking at buying a plot of land that um, and building uh, for a couple of years now. And it was just across the street from this beautiful gorge. We couldn't afford, of course, on, on the gorge, but, um, but we were just wanting to be in the vicinity. And so we had been looking for a while and then COVID hit and prices of building went through the roof, and we realized this was not an economical um, reality for us, that we were just not going to be able to do this. And so um, I had prayed, and I said, God, I just release this to you. If this is something that you want for us one day that, you know, we'll give it to you. I ask you to provide for us. So flash forward, and just really a couple weeks after I prayed that prayer, I was on the phone with a friend, just in casual conversation, um, and she mentioned that a friend down the road had a house that wasn't on the market, um, that she knew was getting ready to sell and it was on the gorge. And so I was like, yeah, how much you want for that? And when she told me, I was like, okay, I need her number today. Like I need her number right now. She's like, I think the house needs a lot of work. Um, but it's, you know, the outside's beautiful. So I called this lady and the lady had lived there 20 years. And I was like, could I come see the house? She's like, oh no, we've lived there for 20 years. I need to fix some things up on the, I need to get it ready 
to show to you. And I said, well, could I at least come walk the outside just to see if it's something that we're interested in? She's like, well, sure. So I drive by there and I walk and they take me out to the backyard and I'm gonna show you what is in the backyard of this house. And so this was the view. I stood on this little ledge point and my heart just sank. And you can go to that next picture. Yes, just from both angles, just gorge on both sides. And so at this point, um, I, in my head, I didn't tell the lady this, but I'm like, I don't care what's in the house. Like I didn't care. I wasn't gonna be able to see the house for a few days, but I didn't care what was in there because I was sold. At that particular point, I was just sold. Now this reminds me a little bit about um, Chip and Joanna Gaines. So now why do we love these shows where they do house renos? They'll come in and they'll take um, the worst house in the best neighborhood. And we love watching this, pro this, this process where Chip and Joanna come in and they pick this house um, it's in a great location, but it needs a lot of work. And we just get something out of watching them transform this place little bit by little bit. And notice, we don't like to watch the show that just shows the immediate flip. Like, here it is now. We like even watching the process, don't we? Um, and now, Chip and Joanna don't come in and buy the best house in the best neighborhood. Now, why? Because then Chip and Joanna get no glory. Because Chip and Joanna don't get to show their skills when the house is already pre-done. It's the fact that the condition is so messed up that Chip and Joanna get to glory in it. And this is what God does. God, see, we focus on our condition, but God focuses on our position. And so when you find a house that's in the right location, it doesn't matter what's inside because I can deal with that. We've got the skills, we've got the builder, we've got the master architect that can deal with whatever's inside. As long as the position is humble and a contrite heart, as long as the position is in a place that God, here am I, I'm admitting, I'm repentant, I'm gonna, I'm broken when I fail. Listen, God can work with that. And this gives God a chance to glory. And so this is why God actually loves to choose messy people. He loves to choose messy people and he likes to choose them on the go because he wants the watching world to watch you over time become more and more like Jesus. Now, this is a picture of what I see when I walk outside my kitchen deck and I can actually hear the creek from below. It's like a dream, y'all. God's so good, exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or imagine. But every time I think of this, I think, and you know, I walk through my house and sometimes it's a mess because we're painting and we're running the house is very 70s, which I kind of like, but it still needs some a, a, a lot of work. And there's going to be renos for a while. I mean, we see ourselves the next 10 years still doing projects, still renovating. And we're okay with that because the position, the location is where we've always dreamed about. And this is what God is like when he sees you and he sees you and I, he looks for the people who just show up to the party. They might be crippled. They might be lame. They might be broken. They might be a mess, but he can work with that. If there's a contrite and a broken heart, you see, we like turnkey, but God likes a project. We like turnkey, but God likes a project because he's the master builder. And he says, I can work with what's inside, <laughs> you know, but now the Pharisees were whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside there was no changing that. And if you even think about the stark contrast between Saul and David, Saul, this king that man chose, but inside he was a mess. And then David, this king that God chose, they said he was a man after God's own heart. Now I always tell my kids, look at these two men, these two kings, one that was a human choice and one that was God's choice. Saul lost the kingdom 
And Saul did way less than David. Saul's mistake was he, he sacrificed something when he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to wait on Samuel to come sacrifice, and he did it anyway. Um, he, didn't things that, he did things that he wasn't supposed to. He did have first-time obedience, so to speak. Yet David murdered someone, took their wife, committed adultery. Again, he, he, he had, took a census one time that he knew was outside of God's will. It cost thousands of lives. Why did God not take the kingdom from David, but he did? from Saul, Saul's sin seems so much more minimal than David's. Um, And the difference was the position of the heart. Saul made excuses. Saul justified. Saul blame shifted. But David said, I have sinned. You are right. I'm frail. God created me a clean heart. David was broken about his sin condition. And so listen, God is God is not concerned so much about your condition as he is the position of your heart. If you have a broken, contrite, humble, teachable heart, God says, I can work with that. Now, this is not an excuse for sloppy agape. This is not an excuse for sloppy living or, you know, scripture says that that there are those who use God's grace as an excuse for immoral living. And that's not what we're talking about. I know you've heard me tell the story about trash juice before. Um, We were just before a conference and I had yelled at my kids. I admit it. I lose my temper sometimes as a mom. I am greatly, greatly flawed. Um, And I had the thought coming in my head, um, like, I shouldn't even be doing this. These women wouldn't even respect me if they had just heard me, you know, teach this to my kids. Call call someone else and have them come stand in for you. You can't do this. And um, about that time, I had taken the trash out and realized that the trash, I walked from the kitchen all the way to the front door and realized that there was something in the trash that was leaking all the way. Um, this was trash juice leaking from my kitchen to my front door. And I heard the spirit of the Lord say, baby girl, the trash might be leaking, but it's on the way out. And so listen, the scripture says that the godly may trip up seven times, but they'll get up again. Um, and so the point is not that, um, that we, that God will just forgive everything and that just gives us an excuse to live however we want. But as long as the trash, the trash might leak, but as long as it's on the way out, that's what's important. And so, again, I want to kind of just stick the little disclaimer. This doesn't mean we can just live however we want and God's still going to use us. We greatly discredit and trivialize the blood of Jesus Christ. Scripture's trampling on the blood of Jesus when we just use grace as a way, a sloppy cover-up for, for you know, not even trying or not effort. And that's more Saul-type behavior. Remember, the position of our heart being, God, I am broken. So what this means is quick to confess. You're going to be a mess, but you should be quick to confess, quick to glory in your weaknesses. And so God gives us space to fail. I want you to think about the fact that he knew that Peter would fall. He said, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter didn't believe it. But Jesus said, Jesus said, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. He said, Satan decided to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your strength would not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. And so Jesus knew that Peter would fall. He knew the disciples would betray. He knew all of this. And yet he still called them. See, God gives us space to fail. And when he purchased us, he knew we would gonna be some long-term projects, y'all. Like some, we we just have to admit, just like my house, I purchased that house knowing that I bought it for the location. It was gonna be a long-term project, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with a temporary mess. I'm okay with things even looking like they're messier than they used to be because there's a great renovation happening right now. And some of you are going through some sifting and some stuff you didn't know was in you is coming to the surface. And so you are under a weight of shame and condemnation. And I'm going to tell you, I've been through a lot of different struggles, but probably one of the hardest 
things to overcome is shame and condemnation. I mean, I have been through sickness of my children, death of my dad, and I'm telling you there's something about shame and condemnation is a different type of struggle. There's a reason our enemy is called the accuser of the brethren. There's something about the strategic attack to accuse and to point his finger and the cloud, the heavy rain cloud of shame and condemnation. Can I tell you that God knew you were a long-term project and he knew these things were in you before you knew they were in you. Just like Peter, like Peter didn't even know. He, w- he would have never believed he would have fall in that way, but Jesus did, and Jesus still called him. And Jesus still said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. <laughs> like God chooses messy people so that he can glory it. He knew that we're going to be a long-term. And listen, some of you, like my house right now is, is, is out of order because we're renovating and old things are coming. The old is getting, we're getting rid of old things and new things are going in and there's going to be more mess at that current time. So maybe you see some yucky stuff coming out of you right now. Could I just encourage you that God is doing something in the process? If you'll let him don't lose heart and don't succumb to this weight of I'm not good enough. If they only knew what I had done, that God wouldn't choose me. Yes, God already knew and he still chose you. Um, so, so what if you, what if you mess up? What if you say yes to the call of God and you mess up? Can I just tell you, you are going to mess up. It's guaranteed it's going to happen. People that you're witnessing, that you're leading, you are going to fail them. You're going to hurt them, hopefully not intentionally, but you are going to mess up. Absolutely, it's going to happen. And so what I want to encourage you to do, though, is that you should quickly repent and let people see, freely admit that you're a work in progress, that you should let people see that, yes, I failed. Yes, I, I, I'm broken, and I, I ask you to forgive me because I, I marred my witness, and Christ is still working. I'm so ashamed, but I'm thankful for God's grace, and would you please forgive me? And can I tell you, when your family and friends hear you confess like that, that's the true mark of salvation, that kind of repentance, because what happens is the world shouts their successes and hides their failures. Look at Instagram. The world is really loud about all the things we're good about and really quiet about the things that we're not. But scripture, in scripture, the Christ follower is supposed to be unashamed of our weaknesses and quiet about our strengths. Jesus said, when you give a gift, like he didn't say, when you give a gift, be sure that you take a picture with the poor that you just served and post it on Instagram because is it really community service if you didn't post about it? Mm, I'm talking about. So this is, this is, the Bible actually says, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into a closet so no one can hear you. When you fast, wash your face and don't tell anyone. We're actually supposed to be very quiet about our successes and very vocal, confessing our faults one to another so that we might be healed. And so this is why, you know, even among leadership, I, I really determined that I wanted to be vulnerable about my failures, because I, I don't know about you, but I've never been inspired by someone's, you know, complete successes that never fails. It only disheartens me. It only discourages me. But when someone is raw and vulnerable, and when I realize, wow, that person I really respected blew it, but they got up from that and kept going and repented, that makes me realize, okay, God can do this in me too. And so if scripture's gloried in the apostles' weaknesses, guys, we've got to stop pretending like we have everything together. We have to admit when we are wrong to those around us, ask for repentance, get up and move on. This is what's going to differentiate us from the beginning. And so I love the fact, the whole point of this though, is that God wants to use you right where you are. If you look at the Samaritan woman, that immediately, immediately, 
immediately when God saved her. He called her in this instant. Then she goes back and wins her whole city. God's not waiting for you to get to a certain point of sanctification for him to begin to use. You know, again, I'm not talking about being a pastor, okay? You've been saved for like three days. Let's maybe not go to the mission field yet, okay? So I'm not saying that. Um, and so one of the things that I want to differentiate about, we all, we never don't need accountability. We never outgrow being a t- having a teachable heart or mutual submission to one another. And even the apostles and Paul, he, he tucked away for three years and he learned from the apostles. So there's this learning kind of curve, this accountability and this leadership structure. And I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is that opening your home and being a witness is not leadership. That's basic Christianity. Opening your home and being a witness is not leadership. It's basic Christianity. Again, Zacchaeus did it immediately. That the Samaritan woman immediately went into being a bold witness for Christ, breaking bread and breaking fellowship. This is not leadership. This is basic Christianity. And let me tell you something. It is messy. It is messy. Yeah, I want you to read sometime the book of Ephesians and the, book of, the books of Corinthians and see how messy these home churches were. Like there was some crazy stuff going on up in there. Like there was some wild stuff. I'm talking, you just read it for yourself and see how the scriptures had to come in and correct. Even look at the seven churches in Revelation, the way that Jesus had to correct these churches. There was some great deals of things happening. And listen, there's going to be some mess in your home churches. There's going to be some mess in your home groups. There's going to be times when you pray in, but it crosses the line from a prayer request to like, this is gossip now. Okay, there's going to be some times that, that maybe you fester a little too long over something that your husband did. And so we'll correct. this is why accountability is there, that we can help guide. So, but I want you to understand that Paul and Jesus did not shy away from empowerment to young believers just because there would be mess. They were just committed to walk alongside and to correct the mess. And so it's not that we excuse the mess. It's not that we ignore the mess, but we're not afraid of the mess and neither is God. And so as long as we have a humble and contrite heart that we allow God to discipline us and to correct us and to bring us along, he's okay with on-the-go training. And so he's okay. So you have to be okay with correction and this tension of, look, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not where I, I, I want to be, but praise the Lord, I'm not where I was. And this is the goal that we look at our lives. And am I more like Christ than I was a year ago? Then, okay, the trash might be leaking, but it's on the way out. I'm not going to listen to the accuser of the brethren who stands before God. This is what he did to Job. He stood before God and accused Job's most before God. He is the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus's voice, now listen to me, the voice of the shepherd says, I don't accuse you either, woman. Go and sin no more. Notice he didn't say, I don't accuse you either. It's okay what you're doing. Okay. So he didn't excuse her sin, but he did say, I'm not, where are your accusers? Because he will fight and defend for you. So if you are, if you are under a weight of shame or condemnation, maybe you said something or did something, or maybe you really blew it even as, as, as early as this morning or yesterday, can I tell you it's okay. God's okay with a long-term project. God wants to use you right where you are. Just admit what you did. Get up and let's keep going. God's okay with you being a message. He knew that there was going to be some mess along the process. Now I want to close with um, one of the people that God chose, and this was Moses. And um, I want you to see some of his excuses of why God couldn't use him and then God's responses to those. It's just so beautiful. And I, and I think that you're going to find yourself in this. And I want you to see the long suffering of the Lord 
and the patience of the Lord as he calls us out of what's familiar, as he commissions us and empowers us to go be bold witnesses in our workplace. Remember, he could go into your workplace on his own. He doesn't want to. He wants to use you. He could go into your school and the Holy Spirit could fall down and glory of God could come out of heaven and the cloud could show up. He could make a donkey talk if he wanted to and share the gospel. He could blind them all if he wanted to. He doesn't want to. He put you in your school. He put you at your workplace because he wants you to be the light of God that breaks forth in darkness. You are bringing heaven to earth, heaven to your sphere. This is what the gospel is about. This is big picture empowerment. That you are saved not just from something, but for something. And so here we see Moses, God calling to him from this burning bush, calling to him. This man who had murdered someone and was running from his past in the wilderness, murdered someone, running from his past in the wilderness, since the call of God and then blew it. And boy, have I been there. Since the call of God, make steps in my own human effort and then hurt people along the way, running in shame from my own mistakes, but God in his tender mercy still calling out from that bush. And so he says, Moses, I want to send you back to be a deliverer. And listen, God wants to send you into your sphere because salvation needs to break out in your school. Salvation needs to break out in your workplace. And so you're going to have some of these same excuses, these same questions that Moses had for God. And the first question that Moses poised to God was, who am I? Who am I? In Exodus 3, it says, God said, now go for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. This was God's answer. Moses says, who am I? And Pharaoh says, I mean, God says, I am. See, we say, who am I? But God disregards who we, he says, yeah, but I am. And I'm going to be with you. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Egypt? But God's response is, I will be with you. And I am. The secret to overcoming intimidation and insecurity is not a self-assurance or self-reliance. It's a God assurance and a God reliance. When we freely revel in our weaknesses, revel in the fact that I am broken. I am not qualified. I am not good enough. I am a mess, but this is not about me. The story's never been about me. It's been about the master builder, the master renovator. And if he can do this for me, then he can do this for you. This is why they overcome him by the word of their testimony. Because it's in seeing what God's done in me that I can show you he can do anything for you. It's about displaying him. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is. The second question that Moses asked, the second excuse, he says, but what if? In Exodus 4, 1, it says, but Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord's never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? So he says, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And you're going to say this too. Like, what if they don't, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't take me serious? What if they tell me no? What if, what if, what if, what if I fail? And God's response is, what is? What's in your hand? What do you currently have right now? What was in Moses' hand was just a staff, a stick. But you know that stick represented the cross. So God is saying, I want you to take what currently you have in your hand. You may not have much. You may just have a testimony. 
You may not have a Bible college degree, but you have your story. What's in your hand? You have the cross in your hand. What if you fail? Well, then I have the cross. And so whatever's in your hand, it might just be a small apartment. It might just be a, a, a testimony. It might be something very small. You may, you may want to do food outreach, but all you have is just a little bit of fishes and loaves. God's okay with that. We take what we have, what's in your hand, just give it to the Lord, just as is right now. God says, I can work with that. What's in your hand? And then the third question, third excuse, he says, but I'm not. But I'm not. But I'm not skilled. Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been. I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And the Lord asked Moses, this is his response, who made? I'm not. They said, who made? Who made a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or don't speak, hear, don't hear, see, don't see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. So he said, who made? Now go. Who made? Now go. Again, it's taking the focus off of us. It's putting it on who it belongs. That he made our mouths. He knows our weaknesses. And if he says to go, then he knows we should go. And so he says, now go. I will be with you as you speak. And I will instruct you in what you say. Listen, take the focus off of you and your limitations. And really just give God a chance to show up in your weakness. To show up in glory in your weakness. I love, I want you to listen to this as I close this last, this last verse. Verse 13. You think Moses, old Mo, would have it at this point? But he actually pleaded again, Lord, please send anyone else. And maybe you've been like that. God, please just send anyone. Don't, don't make me open up my house. Like, please send anyone else. And you would think by the image that most would give of God's nature or character that Moses, that God would be like, forget it. Forget it. I'm going to get somebody else. This God doesn't even, he doesn't even see what a privilege this is. Just forget it. But listen to the kindness and the mercy of God. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. So he was frustrated. But he said, all right. What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he's on his way to meet you now. He'll be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put the words in his mouth. I'll be with both of you as you speak. And I will instruct you both in what to do. And man, when I've read that, I just got super excited because I thought about co-hosts and hosts. I love the graciousness of God here. It's like, <sighs> okay, listen. So I know you're scared to do this, but think about your friend over here. You may not want to open your house. It's too vulnerable, but she's got a nice house. Just go ask her. She'll use her house. You'll, you'll bring the food and she'll provide the house. You notice Jesus sent people two by two. Our loving father is so gracious that he wants us to do this together in community, that he's patient with our weaknesses. And that even if you're in the point and you're still negotiating with God, you're still arguing with God, God's like, all right, remember so-and-so, she's your, she's your pal. She'll help you. Ask her to help you. Reach out and ask someone to come alongside you and to give you courage just to go. But listen, go, I'm with you. I pray that you can hear the spirit of God calling out to you, empowering you for whatever it is he is desiring you to do. For some of you, it's just being a bold witness at work, inviting that work friend to an Arise gathering, inviting her into your home, just building relationships, talk, speaking up and talking about the Lord, stopping and praying with someone right in the store. Some of you, God just wants you to stop right there in the store next time you're there. And I have a sneaking suspicion this is going to happen to some of you. You're going to encounter a friend in Walmart or in Target. And they're going to say, pray for me. And God wants you to stop right there 
Don't just say, I'll pray for you at home. Stop right there and begin to pray for them and watch how God will use you in that moment. Your words can be clumsy. It's okay. It's not about your words. It's about the Spirit of God in that moment. So I want to pray for you that you will settle into the empowerment of God, that you'll listen to His voice, and that you'll come out of that shame of condemnation and guilt. And so, Father, I just pray right now. And I ask you, Jesus, that Holy Spirit, your word would go forth and penetrate every excuse would penetrate every lie of the enemy, the accusing tongue of the enemy that would cause us to be heavy under a weight of shame, a cloud of shame and discouragement. God, we thank you that, Lord, some of the best, most ministry-filled opportunities we have don't come from our successes, but from our failures. When we give your glory a chance to be on display through our brokenness, that we like clay jars that are broken and fragile will leak out the glory of God, the mercy and kindness of Yahweh. We just pray, Father, that that you would help us to understand your love for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have grace for ourselves. Many of us, many of those listening right now, you have more grace for those around you than you give to yourself. And so right now, we exalt the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ over any of our failures. We don't minimize the work of the cross by exalting our own failures or our own insecurities. God, what you did on the cross was stronger than anything we have done. And so we commit to being a people whose hearts are positioned in a place of humility and teachability. That we fall seven times, but we're not going to give up. We're going to keep getting up and finding new mercies every morning. We're not going to be so distracted by our own mistakes that we forget the call to seek and to save that which is lost, the broken and the hurting around us, that we recognize the tactic and the ploy of the enemy to use shame and condemnation to muzzle and quiet the bride of Christ. And so we rebuke that assignment in the name of Jesus off of your people, off of your girls, that shame and condemnation will not no longer muzzle them. In Jesus' name. Father, stir up the gifts of God. And even now as they begin to discuss and to pray with one another, Lord, I pray the confession of sin would bring healing, healing and freedom. That some that have been watch- are watching this right now have been held hostage by secret sin. And I pray as they open their mouth and share in a safe place that freedom and deliverance comes. And the chains that are holding them hostage under guilt and condemnation will be broken as they freely admit, yes, I did this, but Christ set me free. Christ's blood is greater. And I thank you, Father, that there is healing and forgiveness that when light shows up, the darkness has to flee. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.